Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 20. No, looking forward so much good stuff going on in the life of our church with uh, Stephen. I'm glad for that report. Looking forward to what we can hear from him. I think on Sunday, uh, they'll be going. One of the things we do in our partnership with Los Angeles is we help sponsor a resident in L.A., um, and uh, so we have one of our residents who's just planted a church, and so they just got started, and it's going super uh, really well, and I think Stephen and them are going out there on Sunday to that church and being able to, to see that work going on. So that's exciting, being able to support that guy as he goes out to plant church. Trenton Mueller is his name, and so uh, going to be doing that. So that's exciting. Looking forward to hearing hearing back from that, and of course, our ladies. We're going to continue looking tonight. I just kind of want to do a, a part two, if you will, of Exodus chapter 20 with the Ten Commandments. Again, I, I, I'm not and have not uh, particularly gone through each one of them extensively or individually. Uh, I did that last year. I was just checking today to make sure on our, on our website, those are still available, the sermons where we went through each Ten Commandments, each one of them. So if you're interested in any of those, we went through them individually, one sermon to each, really. So uh, that's still available that you can that you can find. So last week I wanted to just do a big picture. I, I'm thankful. Yesterday was two years. Two years ago, yesterday I preached in view of a call here at Taylor's. So I got I got that little notification last night at 10:30 at night, and it just reminded me, oh, it was today, you know. And so uh, I went back and I, I watched my sermon from that two years ago, and so and I was thinking, man, that was a really really good sermon. And uh, I would have voted for myself, too. That's a joke. I've been here two years, so I can say it now. Y'all know I'm just playing around. Um, But it's good to know that in those two years, y'all have learned kind of some things about me. Christmas testified to that because this Christmas, I got a Bob Ross coffee mug. I got a Bob Ross bobblehead. And I got a Bob Ross calendar. So every month, I get to flip to a new Bob Ross picture. I get the bobblehead. The bobblehead even came with this little stand-up thing where you can flip it where he's actually looking like he's painting a picture. So it's just fun. Um, And the coffee mug, when you pour hot stuff in, it changes colors. It's a fun coffee mug. Um, So anyway, y'all have learned that. And remember, that comes from our understanding as I kind of gave an illustration of how progressive revelation works. It's kind of like painting a picture, if you will. So Bob Ross, being the the great and most famous of American artists, um, is there and he's painting a picture and you're watching him do it right before your eyes and he's doing just brush stroke after brush stroke and I'm thinking he's messing up and it's just working out perfectly. The Bible works that way in that every single story is another brush stroke in the picture that God is painting as we read it, right? And so you come through and then of course the painting is Jesus, is Christ. And so progressive revelation, the idea that the Bible didn't start off just telling us exactly what was gonna happen, We see it, and it grows, and it's progressing throughout of how God is going to redeem his people from their sins. And by the time you get to the New Testament, the picture has been painted. It is Christ. And as Hebrews said, he spoke in various and sundry ways before through the prophets. Now he has spoken finally in Jesus. And all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. So tonight, 
we're going to look at this really, this is this Exodus chapter 20 is not just a simple little brush stroke, but this is a major part of the picture that gets us here to what we're going to and how this points us to Christ. Christ himself is going to demonstrate that's when it understands how the law works. And so I want us just to look a little bit tonight, if we can, maybe we'll, maybe it'll sound good, um, but we'll, we'll just look a little bit tonight on how Christ relates to the law and has transformed the law, basically, how this works for us um, in this. And, and that'll build off of what we did last week. So let me go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to be with our time. And then again, and then we'll look at it. Father, thank you for the good word we have heard from Pastor Stephen. We're excited about that. We ask you to be with him as he goes to LA this week and, and with Trenton Mueller and his church and just God, see uh, your hand working there. We thank you for uh, uh, the ladies that are going on retreat just be with them, and we thank you for our time tonight around your word. So God, be glorified in it, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember, I just want to summarize a little bit from last week. We saw basically three principles, if you will, surrounding the, the Ten Commandments, and those three principles are, are quite easy. There's this uh, unique status with these ten they are given a, a special place, right? I'm trying to get this right. They're given a special place for us. Um, we have a lot of laws that will come into play, but these 10 become the, the ones, these 10 words that are given have a unique place in God's covenant, in God's work. So we, we see the special relationship they have. And then we also see that these are anchored in the context. If you remember we need to understand the scripture always in its context. And so as you come out of Egypt in the bondage of slavery, these 10 commandments are anchored in that context of God has redeemed his people and saved them, calling them out to himself. Remember, God did not save his people to leave them in the wilderness. He saved them so he can dwell with them. He wants to be with them. So how can a uh, an unholy people dwell with a holy God? Well, here are the standards that you have to live to in order to dwell with the Lord. And so you have these that come out. And so he saved them to be with them, and they come out of that context. Even the laws themselves in Egypt... Pharaoh considered himself to be a God. He says, I don't know the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't know him. Well, God says, there is no other gods but me, and you shall have no other God before me. I am the one. That's coming out of a place with multiple gods. God says, I am the one. And don't you dare make any graven images like they did in Egypt. Don't have these graven images to bow down to. I am God myself. You don't need any anything, any tangible thing there to look at because I'm above all of those things. I'm the creator. I make everything. And then you see how uh, even in the Egyptians had, had oppressed them, caused them to work seven days a week. And so much the Lord says, no, we're going to remember the Sabbath. We're going to rest. And that rest is going to remind us of, of not only that I created the earth, but I'm, I'm the Lord of all creation. And so we're going to rest. And so all of these things, don't murder like Pharaoh murdered the babies. Don't murder. Don't cheat. Don't, don't do all of the things you saw them doing. You don't do it. You are different. The king Pharaoh operated in a different way. This king, this king, the Lord God Almighty, he says, here's my rules. And those rules then are not meant for them to be oppressed again. This is not the oppressive regime of Egypt. This, these rules are for their, for their good. 
They're to, for them to flourish. They're for them to, to, to be able to grow, to be the best they possibly can be, to have, have the best they, they possibly can know. These are for their good. So you keep these rules and you will be blessed, not oppressed, not beat down. So these Ten Commandments are for, for their good, and they have a relationship that is both vertical and horizontal. They have a relationship that, that works with how they relate to God and how they relate to each other. It's amazing how these Ten Commandments operate. Uh, does anybody know, like, we can always look. It's so funny whenever people do this. Remember, one of the great ploys uh, uh, of the world, if you will, of, of Satan, if you will, is the idea that God's rules are too oppressive. That's, that's what I, that goes back to the garden. Y'all know that, right? Did, did, did he really say not to eat of the tree? Right? Did he really do this? That's too much. Is he really asking you not to do that? And so his lie that he plants into Adam and Eve's head is to think that God's withholding something from you that's for your good and for your pleasure. So he's withholding the fruit of this tree in the middle of the garden. He's withholding that for you, and it's great. If you eat it, it's wonderful. He's going to keep the good stuff from you, really? That's the intent of this lie. And in reality, God said, no, if you want to flourish, don't eat from that tree, because if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. And so ultimately, Satan gets them to believe God's withholding something. Well, that's exactly how the operation continues. The lie that is bought by many people in their sin is the idea that God is withholding something good, and he's putting these laws on us that are oppressive. And we hear this a, 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 a good bit. So he's buying in. But what he's saying is, ultimately here, these Ten Commandments are given so that you can flourish, so that you can know how, how, how life is to be with one another and with the Lord. These are good. And so with that in mind, he has them these. And, and the Ten Commandments didn't have this purpose for them, uh, a, a purpose that continues. In other words, Oftentimes people think that these are just Old Testament laws that are there and, 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 and that's it. But, but understand that these Ten Commandments weren't given and then ultimately at the same time they'll just end when Christ comes. Christ didn't come when Jesus comes. He didn't come to end the law, right? He came to what? Fulfill it. He came to fulfill it. Quite different here. And so ultimately, that's what we want to see tonight. How does this then relate to us? How does the law, the Old Testament law, relate to who we are? Now, people throughout church history have tried to understand this as well. Uh, one of uh, the, the famous theologians in church history has offered up, that's kind of run its uh, way and, and, and has some legs to it, uh, uh, an understanding of the law where it's called the three uses of the law. The three uses of the law. He's trying to comprehend why or explain why this law still is, is in operation for us today. It's not over. These three uses is, are to give some sense of that. He argues that the three uses of the law go, one, the, the law is like a mirror. It reflects, it reflects us and the perfect righteousness of God. Our sinfulness, his righteousness. When we look in the mirror, we see our 
We see our sinfulness, right? And we see God's righteousness. So the law, the use the law has is to teach us. Paul calls this, uh, the law is a schoolmaster, a teacher, if you will. So when you look at the law, it's operating in that way. The law shows us God's righteousness and our sinfulness. And, it's, it, and that's good, right? I mean, that's what Paul says. That's why it's good for us. It, it, it doesn't save us, but it shows us our standing before God. It shows us our standing before God. That's it, one use. A next, another use is that it is used in a civil sense. Now, I want us to be clear about this. We uh, understand that we don't live in a theocracy. God is not king of America. You know, does everybody understand what I'm saying about that? He's the king of the universe. But we don't imply that, 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 that everybody simply the laws have to reflect it. Does anybody know how many laws the U.S. government has. Anybody know how many laws we have, by the way? That's right. Nobody knows. Y'all know how many laws just control gun control in America? I'm not trying to be political, but you know how many laws just are on the books for gun control? Over 20,000. Just for that one issue, over 20,000. So we think God's 10 are oppressive. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's a lot of laws we got to deal with when it comes to over 20,000. But what we do know is, thou shalt not murder is good for all of us. Does that make sense? In other words, when I say the civil use of the law is that God's law and these ten here would be, in a sense, helpful to restrain evil and inhibit lawlessness. We restrain evil with it and inhibit lawlessness. Don't, don't lie. We would all be better off if nobody would lie. Don't murder. We'd all be better off if nobody would murder. Don't do, so this is the use that this law is helping us, if you see it there that way, to say, hey, in this way, this would make society better for us. But not only that, the third use is that it guides believers into good works. It guides us as believers into good works. In other words, it's what I've been arguing here or saying throughout this time. When we look at God's law, it is a reflection of who God is. Just like the rest of scripture, this is revelation. God is revealing himself to us. So when God gives these 10 commandments, they aren't just random in these things. They flow from the character and nature of God himself. This is who God is. And so they flow from his character and nature. So it reflects who God is. And so we as believers who've trusted in Christ, who are being carved into the image of his God's son, right, and, and following after him, we want to follow after the Lord. And so whenever we want to know what does it look like to follow after the Lord, well, at the very beginning, it's we have no other gods before him. We don't make any graven images. We don't take his name in vain. We rest in him as Lord of all creation, heaven and earth. We, we don't commit murder. We love God and we love our neighbor, as Jesus says. We apply the law both vertically in loving God and loving our neighbor. And so we keep the law not out of a need to keep it to find our salvation or gain our salvation. We keep the law because God has saved us and we want to live reflecting him, obeying him, and following him. That becomes the reason for this. And so what does it mean to follow the Lord? Well, at the very beginning, it means the Ten Commandments. It means this. And so ultimately, that's why these things are good for us, useful for us. Now, how does Jesus transform them? How does Jesus transform them? 
This is important because the law endures. It continues. The law is established as God's nature. Therefore, it will never end. We will always have this law as the standard by which we live, even in heaven, right? No murdering there. No liars there. Have you all ever read Revelation? Whenever... uh, Whenever my kids, I think, tell a lie, you know, and I'm, all right, they're lying. I got this down. You know what I always say? Hey, liars go to hell. That's true. You know what I'm saying? Read Revelation. He kicks all of them out. You liars go. And so that'll scare them, man. Liars go to hell. I'm sorry I lied. It doesn't rarely work that way. But feels good to me. And so you have that sense of which, in heaven we'll be living according to these standards right we'll still have this it won't be the burden of trying to keep it in our sinfulness we'll be free from that but ultimately this was established as God's character and nature for all of eternity and so it is not as if this ends and we're no longer under it in the sense of that we never have to follow after or obey him it's It endures. The law will not pass away. So if you will, we'll see this. If you turn to Matthew chapter 5. What I mean here is you have to kind of understand that the law is not just something. It's not just made for us to obey, if you will. It's, It's something to fulfill. It's something to fulfill. So in Matthew chapter 5. I forgot I told y'all to turn there. I need to turn there myself. Jesus is teaching in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in some ways, there is this, uh, this same. It's interesting how Matthew lays out his gospel. We talked about this in, in uh, our Christmas season. How Matthew kind of lays out his gospel with Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who's the who's kind of the new Israel. Uh, Jesus is just like Israel where he was born. He had to flee to Egypt, right, because of persecution. He had to run to Egypt. God calls him back. He goes through, uh, uh, having been raised up, he starts his ministry by going to the baptism, passing through the water, just like, uh, by the way, Peter refers to um, the passing through the waters at the Red Sea as the baptism of Israel. You know, he's passing through the water. He does that at the Red Sea. After they come out of that, where does Jesus go? He goes directly into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights where he's tempted by Jesus, right? Comes out of that wilderness, and what does he do there? You have this, uh, having been tempted, he ministers to the crowds, and then he goes up to this mountain in, in, in some similar way, like going up to the mountain that's like Sinai, right? He's going up to the mountain to teach his people. And what does he do on the mountain? He goes after the ten, the commandments, the law. And in fact, especially that second half of the law, he's going to show how it operates. That first half still is in practice. The first half is still there. Now he's going to go deeper into how you relate to one another. What does this look like in relation to one another? So he says in Matthew chapter 5, he gives the Beatitudes, tells them how it operates, Then he says, Christ came to fulfill the law. Verse 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. He's speaking of the language, the Hebrew language, right? 
And so the, the smallest of marks is what he's saying in, within writing of that language. Not, not the smallest of marks will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about kingdom life. And so when we do them and teach them, this is, this is an example of, of flourishing in the kingdom of heaven. And so he says they'll be great there. And then he goes on, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is pointing beyond something. He's saying you can see this righteousness uh, that, that, that they try to offer, but that's not good enough. And then he's going to say why. That's not good enough. It's like Paul, remember, I think I said this last week. Paul basically could check off the boxes. I haven't murdered anybody. I, I, I try not, you know, I don't lie. I'm honest. All of these things. Until you start reading Matthew chapter 5, you may think the same thing. I've never murdered anybody. I've never, I've never like, you know, I've lied a little bit. But y'all know what I'm talking about. We feel like we, we're keeping these. And so Jesus comes along and he says, let's talk about this a little bit. You have heard. Well, where did you hear? You heard. You've heard it said, those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, rem and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and put you in prison. Thus I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. He goes on into judges and pennies and all these other things, starting with you have heard you should not commit murder. He's saying that this goes beyond just killing someone and taking their life. It goes into a hatred that will lead to destroying their life, Right? Or destroying your life. That's what he's talking about. Before you take him to the judge to destroy him, work this out. We don't look to destroy one another. We don't hate one another. In fact, James has to deal with this. In the church, James writes in James chapter 4. James, the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, he says, what causes quarrels in James 4.1, what causes quarrels and fights among you, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. First John will say anybody who hates his brother is a murderer. Ultimately, he's saying it goes beyond just you know, taking their breath, what we know of literally murder. It goes deeper to our own hatred of someone. If that's where you're at, if you hate someone, then he's saying you committed murder already. Jesus is transforming this to go beyond just what our actions are to where our heart is, where our mind is, deeper than all of this, where our motives are. He's diving in to say this is where it goes. This is where it goes, and he continues. He goes next to lust. You've heard 
that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, you, you've heard us not commit adultery. So we think of that sexual act that is adulterous with someone who is not our husband or our wife. That's it. He says it goes much deeper than that. It's looking at someone with lust, desiring them. That's not your husband and wife. That's adultery. When he says that, doesn't that change the way we view it? My goodness, it, 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 it's in some ways terrifying, right? Because I want to go ahead and say everyone in here, everybody in here is guilty of lust. So we may be able to say, I've never cheated on my wife. Jesus says, really? Consider your heart. Consider your thoughts. It goes deeper. Or he continues. By the way, he gives the, the, the remedy for this uh, in very hyperbolic language. Jesus is not literally saying hyper, hyperbole. Y'all know what hyperbole is, right? Extreme exaggeration. And so he's ultimately saying, you do whatever it takes not to sin in this way. If it, if it takes gouging out your eye, you do that. He's speaking hyperbolically. Don't gouge out your eye. But, men, if you're struggling looking at the internet, at pornography and other things, then find out a way. Only use that internet whenever you're with your wife or with someone with accountability. Only use it for work. Put whatever you can do on there to stop yourself. You keep saying, I fall into that. I, put my, I fall into those temptations. But you're falling into those temptations because you have not gouged out an eye, cut off your hand. Do that. Find ways to put yourself in a place where you can use this with, with accountability from somebody else. That's what he's saying. Do whatever it takes not to fall into that again. Do whatever it takes. That's how dangerous it is. He goes in. He keeps going. He, he brings up divorce used in that issue of adultery. He's even saying that's, all, uh, that's also sinful on your part. You're looking for an easy way out of this, right? He goes to the next one. Again, you've heard it was said to those of old, verse 33, you shall not swear falsely. You shouldn't lie. But shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I wish we could, right? He says, but what, what you say simply be your yes and your, your yes or your no. Anything more comes from evil. He's talking about how uh, many of them in that day, the lawyers that knew it, would say, hey, here's how you can do this. Swear by Jerusalem, swear by God, swear by other ways. That way you can prove your word. You have to have some weight behind it to prove your word. He's not necessarily, we don't believe as, as Baptists really that, you, that this means some have in the past, but you can't take an oath. That's not way, an oath is a commitment. It's a promise that we'll keep, right? That's a, so you, you, you can, what he's saying is you don't swear by something that's, that's there in this place that is greater as if your word's not enough. It should be the fact that when I say I will be there, I'm coming, I'll be there, I'll see you tomorrow night. Are you coming? I'll see you tomorrow night. Really? I swear I will, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Because we maybe have broken those promises so much in the past, our word now is worthless. 
And so we got to find something to swear by, something to add on to it to try to get you to believe me. He says, don't be like that. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Be one that is always fulfilling what you make promises to. Again, that's hard as a parent because I promised all kind of stuff and then realized I didn't want you to give you that. You know what I mean? Y'all behave. I'll give you a milkshake. I will go get a milkshake. And then Allison's like, well, it's too late to get a milkshake. Well, we'll get a milkshake next month. You know what I'm saying? You've got to fulfill the promise somehow. Let your yes be yes, he says. It's not just, it's not just don't swear falsely. Let your word be true. Let your word be true. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We'll get to that, by the way, in the next chapter or so. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him to the other also. If anyone would sue you, take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In other words, the Lord is the one who takes care of us and watches over us. Jesus is saying the law is much deeper than you think it is. And with every one of these, where he's bringing these up in our relationship to one another, our relationship to God, what it's telling us is I think we see in this, right? And hopefully I'm preaching to the choir at this point, right? But I think we see in this, man, I've broken all of these. I can't say I'm not an adulterer. I can't say I'm not a liar. I can't say I'm not a murderer. If it's not hating your brother, I can't say I'm not a murderer. I've broken every one of them. And here you have that use of the law because you start looking into this mirror and you see the righteousness of God and the requirement that he has for us and you see your own sinfulness. Jesus says, I came not to abolish that, not to just go, hey, y'all know about the law? Don't worry about it. Y'all know how? In fact, he says the opposite. He doesn't say, y'all know about the law? I got that covered. Y'all don't worry about that. I'm going to take care of the law. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. Y'all don't. That's not what he says at all. He says, you know the law? It's a lot deeper than you think. You want to know your situation? It's a lot worse in your standing before God than you think. I've come to fulfill it. Jesus is the one who would not look upon another in lust. Jesus is the one whose word would be true. Jesus is the one who did not hate his brother but loved him even when he had every reason it would seem to hate him. Jesus is the one that fulfills every single part of this law. He keeps his promises. He doesn't lie. He doesn't break them. He keeps them all. Jesus is the one who does turn the other cheek, who does give up his cloak when, his, when, when they need it. He gives all that he has. This is Jesus. He didn't come to say, don't worry about the law. He came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill it. And what we learn from this then, as we think of those uses of the law, what we learn is that when we look in that mirror and we see the righteousness of God and the requirements of the law, then we are desperate for someone to come along and help us. Because if we have to stand before God, if we have to stand before him based upon our own merit and what we have done, then we are guilty. We're guilty. And as many of y'all know, how many 
sins do you have to commit to be a sinner? Just one. Yet all of us know it's not been just one. We're guilty before him. The law shows us this. These commandments. Jesus says that's showing us what exactly what you're doing. In every way, more than ever before, Jesus teaches us that we cannot keep the law. We cannot keep it. And we have to have somebody to keep it for us. If you turn back, this passage in Deuteronomy 7 kind of summarizes this, and then we'll keep going with a couple more passages in the New Testament to see what Jesus has done. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 He's talking here again to his people, and he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. By the way, Peter, we've pointed this out before, Peter picks up this exact same language for those who were in Christ. Out of all the peoples of the face of the earth, that's the rest of that sentence, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, God chose us not because there was anything great in you. He didn't look down and go, if I'm picking teams, I'm going to pick the best player, right? He's saying you weren't even the greatest out there. You weren't the largest. You weren't the smallest. I chose you because how? Why? I wanted to. Nothing in you. Nothing in you made me go, that's the one I want. I chose you because I wanted to. I made you my treasured possession because I wanted to. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand, out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord, your God, is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He loves you and he keeps you and you will be seen as his people by the fact that you keep his commandments. He's redeemed you and he saved you and now everybody in the world will know you belong to God the true God, because you follow him and keep his commandments. But look at verse 10. It's love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and statutes and the rules that I command you today. You see both in this sentence the love of God for his people and the wrath of God against all of those who do not keep his commandments. And what's the difference in love and hate? What does it look like in love and hate here for God? We talked about this last week. If we're going to love God, we got to know God is the one who defines what that looks like. He defines love, not us. 
We don't get to negotiate the contract. Y'all know what I'm talking about? God is like, hey, I want you in my family. And we go, all right, I'm coming in, but here's what I expect from you. We don't get to negotiate this contract with God. God says, you can come into my family. Here's what it requires, right? What does love and hate looks like in this passage? It looks like following him in obedience to his word, his commandments. You love him, you'll follow him. If you hate him, you won't keep his commandments. If y'all think that's just Old Testament, do y'all remember what 1 John says? Anyone who says they love God and does not keep his commandments is a liar. For his commandments are a joy and not a burden. There's a key point there. Why are his commandments a joy for us? Turn with me, because we ain't got much time left. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. I'm telling y'all, Colossians 1, you know, you have the famous Christological passages in in the New Testament, right? You got John 1, you got Colossians 1, you got Hebrews 1. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You got those famous passages about Jesus. But man, Colossians 2 gets me every time. One, because I think it's a great Baptist passage. We can talk about that later. But also for what he says here in Colossians. In Colossians 2, listen to what he's talking about with Christ. He's just, fin- I mean, like, seriously, I, you almost, I almost want to read the whole book, but I'm, I'm not going to do it. Therefore, as you receive, this is verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God and raised who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He's talking about our relationship to the law. And if we just have to stand up against the law, we are guilty. We're guilty. But what does he say next? He's canceled those debts. And what does it take to cancel those debts? Y'all, I'm telling you, this is really good. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. This is good, right? You got a pen, underline this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Did God take Sheets of paper with all our sins on it and nail it to a cross? Did he take 
the document and charges against us and nail it to a cross? Yes, he did. And he did so by nailing his perfect son to a cross who took all of our sins. He who knew no sin became sin so that we can be made into the family of God, the righteousness of God. He took all of our debt, our sins, our guilt, all of those things, and the Lord placed them upon Christ, nailed him to the cross. He suffered the righteous penalty for sin. God did not sweep our sins under the rug and say, I'm just going to let this pass. He placed them all on his son, Jesus Christ. He says this in this passage, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. When he talks about the circumcision of Christ, he's speaking about his death on the cross. Where in Christ he takes our fleshly desires, our fleshly sinfulness, and he pulls it off, rips it off even with this imagery here. Because he says he was circumcised with the circumcision of Christ, he was buried, he was raised. All of this for us and our justification before God. And when we go to heaven, and we stand before the righteous judge of all the universe, and he says, why should I let you into my kingdom? Y'all know we don't have an answer for that. The only hope we got is that the one who justifies Jesus Christ himself steps up and says, this one is covered by me. I have canceled his debt. He's mine. You see, the law has only demonstrated that we are guilty before God. And the only way we can have our guilt forgiven is if Christ has covered us with his righteousness washed us clean with his blood, canceled our record of debt by us looking to the cross. That's it. That's all we have. We're going to see this week, we'll look this Sunday, I'm going to preach this Sunday from Acts chapter, end of chapter 6, on into 7. Y'all get ready because I'm going to read a long passage of Scripture Sunday, all right? Y'all get ready for that. Stephen, and you'll hear me say this this Sunday. I'm struck by, in Acts, with the apostles and those who are teaching, their message is Jesus. They don't get off into any political drama. They really don't. In fact, they're not even worried about that. They're caught up in the middle of it, but they say, I'm just here to preach Jesus, right? They're caught up with the Sadducees and leadership and others trying to say this, that, and the other, and the Sadducees are concerned about their position before Rome. They don't want an uprising. They don't want other things, and they just simply say, you can tell me what I want. What you cannot tell me to do is stop proclaiming Christ. And even in the face of persecution, the scripture says at the end of chapter 5, they did not cease day to day, house to house to proclaim Jesus is the Christ. 
The message of the gospel, the message of the apostles, the message of the New Testament, and the message of all of those who believe in him is nothing more or nothing less than Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Period. You want to be saved? Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. That's it. You want to know life? Then believe and trust in Jesus Christ. He is it. There is no other message. There is no other offering. There is nothing else to say. It's Christ. It's always Christ. It's only Christ. It's him. And the law teaches us this over and over and over again. Because every time we read it, we're reminded, I didn't keep it. I can't keep it. I'm a sinner. And we're looking for someone to save us from it. And the only one there is the one who canceled our sin debt on the cross. It's the only one. So we can throw a lot of things into the mix and we can talk about a lot of different stuff, but at the end of the day, it is Christ. That's who we proclaim. Paul puts it simply. Jesus Christ is Lord. Him we proclaim. Nothing else. And when we read the law, we know why. Because we've got nowhere else to turn. Nowhere else to go but Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. God, make us ever more thankful for Jesus every single day. And in him, Father, help us to live. Live for you, honor you, bring glory to your name. All of, the, we, all of this we ask, trusting in Jesus, coming in his name. For it's in his name we even pray. Amen. Amen. Thank y'all so much. Y'all have a good night. We'll see you Sunday.